This is Sovereign Debt, a podcast on greening the global economy and debt sustainability. I'm your host, Jill Doshi. Today's guest is Dr. Deborah Brodigan of Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE, which is based here in Washington, D.C., and she leads the China-Africa Research Initiative, which is a research program dedicated to understanding the political and economic relations between China and Africa. And personally, I think she's one of the most level-headed and objective voices on China-related lending to Africa. And I thought we could all benefit from her walking us through some of the basics of China's policies and their uh, stance towards the G20 debt relief initiatives. So, Dr. Brodigan, thank you so much for joining us here today. We have a lot of questions to get through, but I want to begin with really China and the G20 debt relief initiatives that came out uh, in response to the pandemic. We knew that even before the pandemic that China had become the largest lender, bilateral lender to emerging markets and developing countries. Uh, So it was obvious that we were going to need a new framework for debt relief. Uh, The old frameworks for the Latin American debt crisis, the Asian financial crisis, the HIPAA era, et cetera, um, of the Paris Club. These frameworks that we used back then were really increasingly out of date. And so when the pandemic just really accelerated this need for reform. So how did China decide to participate they had previously always sought bilateral negotiations with better countries. How, how Can you explain to us how they decided to join this multilateral effort? I think, Jill, what we see going on now is, is really interesting. Uh, what little we see, actually. There's uh, so much going on um, beneath the surface that we're still trying to figure out. But China joining this G20 debt service suspension initiative, the DSSI, uh, that started very quickly after the pandemic. That really was a, a kind of remarkable move. Um, but then the question became just which Chinese entities are, are actually going to be part of the DSSI and which are staying outside of the DSSI. So why did they not veto the whole idea right at the beginning? I think it's because they really value the G20 and they value their membership in it. Um, In 2016, China hosted, they were the presidency, it's a revolving thing. So they were the presidents, uh, they had the presidency of the G20. And it was during that period that the uh, International Financial Architecture Working Group was relaunched. And so the Chinese have been interested in that working group. They're interested um, in what the G20 has to say about global finance. And they're interested in it as a platform for, um, for their perspective. And they believe that they combine this uh, unique perspective. They're a G20 member and uh, one of either the first or the second largest economy in the world, depending how you calculate it. But they're also a developing country. So I think they felt that they could um, weigh in on some of the questions. And I'll just mention one, uh, one thing that I think reflects some of their perspective you were mentioning that the Chinese are the largest uh, creditor to the emerging markets. And it really depends um, which 
uh, emerging markets you're looking at. But if you look at the World Bank's data on external debt, public and publicly guaranteed external debt in low and middle income countries in 2020, according to their data, uh, China held both official and unofficial lenders 5% of total external debt, and the World Bank held 11%. And so I think that's, even if you believe or you um, worry about Chinese uh, unrecorded debt, nobody thinks it's more than 50%. So even if it was 7.5%, it would still be quite a bit lower than the World Bank. And one of the things we've seen the Chinese pushing for in the G20 DSSI is for the World Bank to join. Yeah, so that's an interesting, I think, example of one of the things that, one of the roles that they can play. You know, it took the World Bank a long time to join the last of the HIPAA uh, debt cancellation process. So um, they're pushing already right now for the World Bank to be part of this. Right, but the World Bank, like the IMF and other IFIs or MDBs, would be would consider themselves multilaterals in a, in a whole different category than, say, China as an official lender. So, I mean, they would consider themselves it's widely or <laughs> globally accepted that they're a multilateral and you know, have a preferred creditor status and would not participate. And the multilaterals participate, as you just alluded to, in, in the last you know, global restructuring process, which was the HIPAA process, but they, they were participating under what was then called the Multilateral Debt Relief Initiative, which was kind of an added-on initiative for precisely the multilaterals in that case. They never joined HIPIC as a HIPIC member. So it would still be, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that they shouldn't necessarily look at participating in debt relief, uh, um, but they would be participating as a, as a very different sort of creditor than China. True. But it's still that the, the Chinese have been pushing for that. And I think it is interesting that all during the DSSI, uh, countries have had to service their debt to the World Bank. Yes, well, that's a whole other conversation that we could have. And it would be interesting to 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 hear kind of, and I don't actually know um, China's perspective on the whole issue of preferred creditor status. But I guess what you're saying is that they would like to not grant that status anymore to multilaterals. I think they'd like to see a... Um, a more, uh, to have everybody jump in. Because right now the Chinese, they are the biggest bilateral creditor for sure. Um, and they're also giving most of the debt relief. And even in, in cases, and we can jump into this, but if you look at um, countries that have not been part of DSSI or countries that kind of got pulled in like Angola, Angola is not in the World Bank group of low income countries, but they are in the UN group. So they're, they're in uh, in that grouping. And the Chinese have given um, the, a large amount of, uh, debt of debt service suspension in Angola. And I don't think any other, uh, there's some small Paris Club activity there, but I don't know that there's been anything else from private creditors in Angola. And, and one would even say that the kind of definitions were constructed in order to kind of capture Angola into that category. I think there's a lot of speculation because... Obviously, if they didn't want Angola, they could have just left it, as you said, at the, the, at the Ida status um, kind of definition. I don't know what you've heard, but I heard that the Chinese actually pushed to have Angola included, which surprised me. I don't know what, uh, you probably have better information on that than I do. <laughs> but, 
Well, it's, in, it's certainly interesting. And it's, it's definitely whatever way it happened. It is interesting that Angola was, was specifically kind of, like I say, it was designed to capture Angola into that process. And, and as you mentioned, China did, did reach a restructuring agreement with them. But you alluded already to the different entities in Chinese lending. So, you know, we have a, I think, a kind of bad habit in, in the West of just kind of saying China, China's lending or China did this or China did that, where in fact, it's much more nuanced. Um, you know, you can't really lump it all together into a kind of a China Inc. Um, in fact, there are, you know, a wide variety of entities that are lending to these markets. Uh, can you can you maybe give us a little breakdown of those and a little kind of snapshot of some of the, the key players and the differences? I'd be happy to, Jill. I think um, I'll take one step back and, and say that many people who are who study China, and, and I'm one of them, I am a, originally a sinologist, we talk about China as a fragmented authoritarian system. So it's not as though, even though Xi Jinping is a very powerful leader and, and the most powerful uh, since Deng Xiaoping, he's not in charge of everything. And it's not as though he orchestrates all of the, uh, the lending activities that happen or the economic things that happen abroad. So it's uh, fragmented with a lot of different stakeholders with a lot of different interests. And so that's really important. In, in terms of how the Chinese view it, they're official, they have two official bilateral creditors. One of them is their Exim Bank, so China Export-Import Bank, which is, is the largest actor overseas, in, at least in Africa. I think uh, China Development Bank, which, is, which the Chinese are not considering an official bilateral creditor, um, they are probably the largest creditor overall, including in Latin America, where they've been a big lender and in Russia. So uh, China Exim Bank and China Development Bank are two policy banks. So they really are arms of the Chinese government, even though China Development Bank is much more commercial in orientation. So they only offer commercial loans, um, whereas China Exim Bank also offers what they call concessional loans, which is a foreign aid instrument. It's about 5% of their lending. And then they have preferential export buyer's credits, which is about 9%. So together, about 14% operates as uh, direct policy tools. And then the rest of their lending is at commercial terms. And that may or may not serve um, a central government purpose. But since they are a policy bank, they're much more closely uh, directed in terms of their lending. Then you've got, um, we have a, a database on Chinese lending in Africa. So I, I'll mainly speak about Africa because that's most of, that's where I know the data is really, really good. So. Oh, there's one other uh, bilateral um, lender, which is the central Chinese government. They have set up recently a foreign aid agency. It's uh, called SIDCA, the China International Development Cooperation Agency. It's really um, pretty small. They, they would have uh, per year maybe three, $3 billion or less in terms of funding. And that goes out as zero interest loans. And these are this instrument is a really important one to... It's not very important in lending, but it's important to understand in your field because this is the only loan that the Chinese have canceled, you know, wiped off the books. It's this zero interest loan, which is already totally accounted for in the Chinese budgetary process. So you mentioned earlier HIPIC and the MDRI. Those debt relief initiatives required the 
uh, creditor countries to pony up new resources. So their their uh, congresses and their parliaments had to vote new money in order to actually um, to allow those debts to be canceled. And that's not the case with China's zero interest loans. It's that money, 100% of that has already been allocated in the budget. They don't really expect to get those back. So it's really like a grant equivalent. I was just going to say, so it's like a grant that they've just decided to finally actually count as a grant. And at one point, they were going to eliminate that category, um, but they've kept it on. And I think it's turned out, you know, it's it's now it's useful politically because they can announce every few years, yes, we're going to have another round of debt cancellation for, it's basically all those interest-free loans that have gone into default in the borrowing countries. And the borrowing countries don't even bother to pay those back anymore because they know that you're going to have another round of, you talk about moral hazard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then and those are very, I mean, when they were given, they were very long-term anyway, right? There was yeah. just, you know, it was just kind of, it was years. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't really expected necessarily by anyone that those were going to be true loans. So those um, are just a few of the lenders now. And back in 2000, when uh, our database begins, there were only those three, uh, the SIDCA, the China Development Bank, and China Export Bank, Export Import Bank, China, China Exim Bank. And now we have um, another seven commercial banks from China that are lending in Africa. And we've got um, over two dozen Chinese companies that also provide suppliers' credits. And so you can see in one of the cases that, that uh, you know about, Jill, in the Republic of Congo, it was a Chinese, uh, um, it's a China Machinery Export Corporation, CMEC. They had put the funding in for um, a big dam project and then the transmission lines coming out of that. And so that had to be restructured separately from the China Exim Bank's loans. So those are how, that's how it gets very complicated now because there's no Beijing club. <laughs> there's no <laughs> central mechanism uh, in Beijing to coordinate all this restructuring. There's one more entity, which is Sinoshore, which is their mm -hmm. expert mm -hmm. credit insurance company. And they are becoming more and more important in this story because uh, many in fact, most of the big loans, uh, commercial loans, not the concessional loans, but the commercial loans require Sinoshore cover. And so that, that's a, a one-time payment for an insurance policy. But then that covers the lender when the borrower goes into default. And then they, but it's not like Sinoshore just pays off uh, the loan to the lender, to Exxon Bank or CDB, and then eats it. They then go... <laughs> They go after the borrower because they're now holding the debt. And how coordinated are all of these entities or not coordinated at all within China? I mean, does someone understanding from the government's perspective in China how much actually their exposure is on an aggregate basis to any one country? I mean, do they have a global view of, of or is it just... There's a directive and then these entities go out and start doing commercial activity. They, there are, you know, there's a whole regulatory system in China. So you've got the Ministry of Finance and you've got the People's Bank of China and they need to report, you know, they need to report to the Bank of International Settlements on these Chinese flows going out. So they, they do know what the different banks are doing, but I don't think there's anyone that's really, um, 
following this all like on a project by project level or just trying to, to figure out how the, those flows then relate to individual country um, issues. Now, it, there should be someone, you know, there are risk, there's, there are risk procedures and risk analysis, but there's, I don't know anywhere where they would go to get the data. You know, there's, uh, I don't know that it would be that the banks share information bank to bank. So it probably, it all gets reported up to some uh, central entity, but then how does that get shared in terms of the banks that are, that then need that information to make their lending decisions? Now, Sinosure would have a lot of that information, but not all of it. Because, uh, for example, the large standard gauge railway project in Kenya, the, this is a, uh, the first phase of this alone was $3.2 billion. And part of that was a commercial loan that had the Sinosure cover. But then the preferential export buyer's credit, which was, I think, $1.6 billion, that didn't have Sinosure cover. So they wouldn't, you know, that's, the Sinosure wouldn't be kind of viewing all of that when they're looking at all of the other requests for um, cover coming in for other projects in Kenya. They have part of the picture. And presumably they would be asking but I'm, it's very difficult to find out how Sinosure works. Very hard to get meetings with them. Because one of the reasons I'm asking is because when, when we say that, you know, say China is participating or in the common framework and, uh, and granted, and let me just you know, say the, the common framework at the moment, we only have three countries going through it. None of the three are really advancing very quickly for a variety of reasons. So it's this is all kind of still somewhat theoretical, but let's say that we had, you know, a, a restructuring framework that was working and that China was participating in. There's been a lot of chatter that China's, and again, kind of China Inc. is trying to kind of have its cake and eat it too, like seem like they're participating in the G20 and seem like they're being a multilateral player and being cooperative, yet at the same time, they're you know, kind of playing with the definitions of public sector, private sector lenders, and, you know, who, what's going to be included or excluded from those debt relief efforts. So that it's, again, one of these criticisms of the way China is behaving on the international stage. And I was just curious, because from what you're describing, it sounds like there are kind of a wide variety of entities, and maybe there's not a real like you say, kind of a, a central view on all of this. You're absolutely right, Jill. There, there, uh, well, there is a view, <laughs> but it's only been emerging slowly. What happened um, at the, when the, the DSSI was launched last year, well, 2020, right um, after the pandemic began, was that uh, the, the, it happened really quickly, as I mentioned. And so there was an agreement about what it would entail. There would be a debt service suspension for six months and it would apply to official bilateral creditors. Well, there was never an agreement uh, amongst all the members about what that meant. And so the uh, Paris Club, they've already worked this out long ago about what is an official bilateral creditor and how do you define that? Um, and many of the, Paris, the, the G20 members are Paris Club members as well. But China isn't, and China had never, they never stated what they meant by official bilateral creditor. And I think it's interesting because at the OECD, all any entity that's owned by the government 
is considered an official creditor, which is really, it's very, very broad. And that's most of the OECD members are, um, are not, they're not, uh, they don't have a lot of state-owned banks. You know, it's pretty much, they're talking about their development finance corporation or their Exim bank or their foreign aid agency. So France, for example, their AFD or Japan, uh, they provide a lot of lo loans through their foreign aid and their export credits. And then the rest of it has been privatized pretty much. Um, but that's not the case in China. Now, when you look at the World Bank, um, the debtor reporting system, for example, the debtor reporting system has uh, the borrowers, they're supposed to classify what, um, where these loans are coming in. And the debtor reporting system, the DRS, says that any loan from a commercial bank, even if it's 100% government owned, but if it's a commercial bank, it should be well, it should be categorized as a private lender. So, so for them, you're supposed to put, you know, so the borrowers are, are hearing, they're supposed to put, you know, like a China, um, Bank of China, for example, or ICBC, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, that should be as a private lender or commercial lender. Whereas um, China Exim Bank would be the official one. And so then the question has always been for the borrowers, where does China Development Bank stand? And I do think that that one example of China Development Bank is where the Chinese are trying to have it both ways because it is a policy bank. But what's also interesting, Jill, is that Germany has made the same argument that the Chinese have made. They have um, KFW IPEX, which is 100% state-owned and it operates 100% as a commercial bank. And they are not including... KFW IPEX in the G20 DSSI. And so nobody's ever talked about that. You know, it's very small, much smaller than China Development Bank, but they interpreted the rules the same way the Chinese did. Interesting. Yeah, because it, I mean, because this is exactly, you know, you you hear, and I'm I'm by far not an expert on China, I will say up front, but you know, we're hearing so much that that, you know, that China's you know, kind of trying to manipulate the rules or play with these definitions. And from my perspective, it's, it sounds like, well, they just kind of maybe think about these things in completely different ways. Um, and, you know, something that is, like you saying, acting completely on a commercial basis um, that is state-owned, you know, where do you put that? Uh, in, what, in what category? Um, <laughs> but that's interesting that there are some Paris Club members that might be facing similar questions. That takes me to another question. Um, I'm, I'm kind of just going down the list of all sorts of criticisms that you hear all the time about China and just trying to kind of demystify some of this. But the, the next one is transparency, where, again, we're always hearing these criticisms of China, and again, kind of China Inc., kind of all of its entities, I suppose, but maybe there are differences in the practices. Um, which you can share with us, but the China in its loan agreements is often putting in very restrictive non-disclosure agreements and that the confidentiality agreements and, and really tying the hands of the, of the debtor country from disclosing or discussing the terms and conditions of, of their loans to China. And at the same time, these same debtor countries are getting quite a lot of criticism themselves of not being transparent or there's hidden debts and kind of, you know, allegations of corruption and all sorts of other kind of um, 
like I say, kind of criticisms of it. And to address that, there are these initiatives to promote debt transparency and to uh, even start to you know, almost require the low-income countries disclose all of their borrowing. Um, there's a database that's um, being put together, which will be housed with the OECD, where debtor countries will have to disclose all of the, the the borrowings that they incur. Do you think that China will resist these efforts? Or do you think in this spirit of, of what you were describing of them wanting to be a, a productive partner at the G20 and kind of a leader in in these new frameworks that are emerging, are, are they going to ease up on those? Are they going to embrace this greater transparency? Or is that is that going to going to continue to be a sticking point going forward? This is another really interesting area to to look at comparisons. And um, we've looked at some of the the loan contracts. There's a group at William and Mary that's put together this group. One of one part of it is at William and Mary College of William and Mary, and uh, they have um, oh, about a hundred or so Chinese loan contracts, and then they've got. Um, a group of loan contracts that were all for the from the Cameroon. So they compare these two, which is not, you know, the Chinese ones come from all over the world and the other ones, the comparison group just comes from the Cameroon. So it's a, it's a, not what you want ideally for a comparison, but I don't think they were trying to really make a comparison. They, or else they would have gotten the other contracts from all over the world as well. (laughs) In any case, uh, it struck me um, how similar the, these non-disclosure clauses were if you look, there are a number of different banks. It's not just the Chinese um, that have non-disclosure clauses. So it's, uh, for example, the French Development Agency, the AFD. Their non-disclosure clause is pretty similar to the Chinese, and I, it, that stuff is all available online, Jill. So if you're interested, it would be you know for your your own uh, uh, knowledge building to just look at some of those. But the so it, it doesn't seem to me when I looked through those, and I'm not an international lawyer, that the Chinese were really uh, strikingly different. Of course, they're different from the World Bank. As you pointed out earlier, the World Bank is a, it's owned by taxpayers. It's a multilateral development agency, depends on, uh, certainly through IDA, depends on donations. And they're very transparent. They didn't, they haven't always been. You know, when I was a student in the 1980s, it was really hard to get information from the World Bank. But they've, uh, transparency is a, a norm that's really grown in the international world, and it's a good norm. So will the Chinese become more transparent? I don't think they will anytime soon. I think this is something, um, foreign aid used to be a state secret, It's um, and then for banking flows, you, you combine the sort of politics of the policy banks and the foreign aid flows, and that's um, they're not even that interested in letting the people in China know about this because it's a lot, a lot of money when you look at the policy banks and they don't want that to be a political uh, issue the way it is in this country. You know, people think we give huge amounts of foreign aid and it's looked at as it's a, a political football or can be. So because of that traditional secrecy, they're unlikely to change. Um, but they're also because of the commercial aspect. So they're, you could see in the G20 communiques, they always said, you know, the country should participate, but and there should be more transparency, but keeping um, with 
with regard to commercial information that, you know, there's, they can keep that up. And so they don't want their competitors to be uh, that familiar with all of the details about how they're doing these songs. It's not, I think that they have nefarious intentions to, to, you know, the wicked things in the contracts they don't want anyone to see, but it's, um, it's, you've got that the sort of banking secrecy, which is, a, it's a very secretive field in commercial banking. Look at Switzerland. <laughs> we know. So in terms of the OECD, I'm, I'm actually on the board uh, to, of advisors for that effort. And I was, I was dismayed when, they, when the OECD was chosen as a location, because again, if you want to get China in, China's not a member of the OECD. And that's really, it seems to me that they would have had a much um, a, a better uh, chance of getting Chinese participation if it had been multilateral. You know, somehow the the multilaterals had uh, agreed to host this, or if um, or even a UN agency. But that you know, until because the OECD requires members to be democracies, the Chinese are are not going to be admitted there anytime soon. On the issue of transparency, I know you've had a new paper that came out recently about Zambia um, and. I mean, and 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 your paper was saying that was you know, significantly more <laughs> uh, uh, debt than what had been previously disclosed. And right afterward, um, the new president actually posted and and released all of the data on on, on the debt. Um, do you think that debtor countries that choose to disclose the details of their of their loan portfolios. Well, are there repercussions with the Chinese lenders, or or are there? How is that going to be kind of received on the other end? We have a few examples um, that shed some light on that, and I think Zambia is an interesting one. But I'll take one step back and say that first of all, we have all of those loan contracts that were posted on the internet. So just to have a hundred loan contracts shows you that that's not totally secretive. <laughs> they're, they're out there, governments are putting them on the internet and so on. Um, and so in Zambia, the Zambian government, the last, the previous government said, they kept saying, we can't tell you, you know, we can't divulge these, uh, we can't tell you how much, so on and so forth. Or, the, or they said, we've told you how much and we, we have nothing more to, to tell you about it. And then a new government came in and suddenly we had all this information about, you know, exactly what they owed to each Chinese creditor and each of, of other creditors as well. So the China, we, as far as we know, the Chinese didn't try to, they were not, um, what they didn't want, I think, was all of the details on the terms to be shared. And the uh, Zambian government has not. They've said, this is the outstanding debt. They haven't even linked it up to particular projects. They've just said, this is the, the debt. Um, okay, so they've just kind of given the headline numbers and 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 confirmed that what what you had been <laughs> saying was that there was indeed a lot more debt than so previously far. disclosed. So far, but they but they haven't disclosed it so much to antagonize the the actual lenders. I think also, Joe, when you look at uh, we collect data from government mainly from government websites in Africa. And if you look at Kenya, for example, or uh, Nigeria, they have um, in their debt management offices, they have a line by line um, for each project. And usually they have the terms too. So it's, um, or often they have the terms. So there's the, the 
how much they've borrowed. Sometimes it's how much they've dispersed, you know, how much they've repaid. And so that information is all available. And um, it's also important to remember that those Chinese contracts all have a clause saying uh, that these, this information should not be disclosed unless required by local law. And so that's a pretty big uh, gap to walk through. So, and, and Zambia, for example, has a law saying that all of those loan contracts and even everything that's guaranteed by the central government is supposed to be passed through parliament for parliamentary approval. And so that's, they haven't been doing that. So shifting to yet another like major topic uh, um, right now on the international stage is, is obviously climate change and, and the need for, again, new, new bold thinking of mobilizing both more investment into adaptation and mitigation efforts, uh, as well as kind of linking some debt relief to perhaps climate and nature um, outcomes you know, through debt for nature swaps and the, and the like that seem to be coming back to life. You and I remember that they used to be around a lot more in the, in the kind of 80s and 90s and then for, for a host of reasons kind of went out of favor. It seems that they're, they're coming back uh, uh, into fashion. Do you think that um, China may be interested or, or willing to look at some of these new frameworks and, and looking for ways to, as I say, link either debt relief or, or looking for to participate in some of these, these efforts? I think it's encouraging that um, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, made an announcement that China was going to stop building coal-fired power plants overseas. So we don't know exactly what that means. They've never right. <laughs> defined what does that mean. Uh, I would imagine it means they're going to stop putting new money into coal, but it doesn't mean they're going to stop everything that's already ongoing. And that it doesn't mean also that they'll reach out and stop a Chinese company that's getting finance from some other source and not let them build it. So I don't think that'll happen either. So um, they will be putting more money into renewables because that's for them, that's very win-win. You know, that's a, a business area that they want to develop more, wind power, and, and uh, especially solar. So that we'll be seeing more money going into that. Um, and then they're already very big in hydro. That's a little more controversial as an as a energy technology, but they'll be continuing that as well. Um, in terms of the debt for nature swaps, I don't see that happening anytime soon. China is very conservative and they don't, um, they don't change quickly. And if you look back uh, at the the debt for nature swaps and what was happening with the whole last debt crisis, it took a while before uh, people recognized that that debt just was not going to be repaid. And I don't think the Chinese are at that point yet. They may have been at that point with, um, they may be at that point when they get to now in the common framework, but there are only three countries that have signed up for the common framework. So no other country has come up saying, we're not going to be able to repay our debt, we need a haircut, you know, a big one. So I doubt very much that they're thinking about all sorts of creative responses to this terrible debt problem because they're not yet seeing it. They're not seeing it. Well, in some ways, because we've put a, a Band-Aid on it, right, <laughs> in, in the, with the DSSI and there's still a lot of liquidity. So even 
low-income countries have been still able to tap the international capital markets. But as market conditions change and as DSSI postponements start running out and that postponed debt starts coming due, I I suspect unless we come up with some more good ideas (laughs) that we will see more countries coming forward with some problems uh, in the future. And we can hope not, but... My last question is is really a bit of a ringer, and I apologize in advance for it. But a lot of our listeners, I hope, are from actual, you know, emerging and developing countries, and hopefully, some debt managers are listening to this. What what advice would you give to a debt manager in a developing country as they're negotiating with these various Chinese entities that you described? You know, given given these. I mean, maybe the NDAs, like you say, are not necessarily unusual from other lenders, but but certainly it seems that they're tough negotiators. <laughs> so what what sort of advice would you give, or even generally, to debt managers looking to do business with China? I would say get someone who's Chinese on your team. <laughs> <laughs> I think that... Um, so much happens, you know, between the, the uh, in the margins of any kinds of meetings, you know, even at the Paris Club, I've, I've heard people saying that the, some of the best deals got struck in the men's room, you know, so, so a lot of things are happening informally. And it, what it's, what's important to do, I think, with regard to China in, in the big sense moving forward is trust building. And that's going to involve repeated interactions and repeated interactions. And right now, the Chinese are, are there, if you look at the Ministry of Finance, um, the People's Bank of China, the international side of that, they're they're pretty uh, like people in Treasury departments and ministries of finance around the world. You know, they're pretty international. They understand these things. But then you get down to the actual banks, and a lot of those people are very um, not internationals at all. And so they're still. It's going to take a while, I think, to. Um, to bring those other players, especially the commercial banks that have only started to lend over the past 10 years or so, and then to, to get them doing deals. They're really inexperienced. So maybe they need you, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I uh, promise everyone I did not put her up to say that. <laughs> our, our side needs to hire more Chinese. Their side needs to hire more experienced Western <laughs> negotiators. So that's the way to go. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Deborah, for joining us here today. It's really been a, a great pleasure to have you, and um, I wish you all the best in, in your future studies, and we look forward to future papers and webinars and, and continue learning from you and your team. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Joe. It was a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to continuing to learn from you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts.